Phone lines are wide open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, time it is. You've got questions. We've got answers. It is Friday on the line of fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Phone lines now open, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Whatever you're wondering about, whatever's on your mind, any way that I can help you, anything in any area of expertise I have, by all means, give me a call. If you would like me to comment on the history of the scientific understanding of the development of the earthworm, sorry, just just not in my areas of expertise. So there are things that I can't help you with, but if there are, by all means, give me a call, 866-34-TRUTH. If you differ with me on any points, you can call in spiritually, theologically, biblically, culturally, politically, having to do with Israel and the Jewish people, questions, calls, comments are warmly welcomed. Also this weekend, special Israel conference, First Things Restoration Conference, Paul Wilbur leading in worship, a special concert. So that's going to be through this weekend, tonight, Friday night, Saturday morning, evening, Sunday morning, evening. The details on my website, sdrbrown.org. Just check on itinerary. All right. We go to David in Washington. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for letting me ask my question. Yes, sir. Uh, it's based on Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, as uh, pertaining to hypergrace. It's a, it's, a, it's a three-part question, if you'll allow me to ask it. Sure. Uh, are those that adhere to the hypergrace message considered currently removing themselves from him that called them into the grace of Christ? And if so, is the hypergrace message another gospel, one other than what the apostles preached? And are those that preach it considered perverting the gospel and are therefore anathema? Yes, sir. Thank you for asking the question so clearly. Some are. In other words, some have departed from the truth of the gospel. Some have so distorted the gospel with hyper-grace teaching that they now preach universalism, that they now preach that as you sin, that you now make sinful things holy. In other words, they have completely distorted the gospel what they are saying is not the gospel. They are not within the body, and they are leading others to hell with them. In its most extreme forms, yes, that is the case. However, the great majority of people that I researched in my book, Hypergrace, are brothers and sisters in the Lord with a wrong emphasis, or who take a good emphasis too far, or who leave out other things that are important. So they do preach the fundamentals of the faith in terms of of salvation through the cross, and they do teach that the gospel empowers us to live above sin, but then along with that, there are serious errors that can lead people astray or hurt them in their walk. But uh, as I spent a couple hours with Joseph Prince, as I've interacted with others that I quote in my book, although we have differences, I recognize them as brothers and sisters in the Lord, that are saved by the same blood that we're saved by, and that also believe that sin is destructive and wrong, and that God's grace empowers us to live above sin, 
But as I said, there are other wrong, dangerous elements in the teaching because of which I don't call it counterfeit grace. That to me would be heresy, rather hypergrace, an exaggeration of something good. It seemed like you did call it counterfeit grace in uh, your book, It's Time to Rock the Boat, many years ago. Well, I wasn't talking about this. Uh, in those days, I wasn't talking about this specific subject of hypergrace because I, I didn't even hear taught back then. There were some of the distinctives of hypergrace today I didn't hear taught uh, 25, 30 years ago. And It's Time to Rock the Boat came out in 1993. Yeah, but counter, the counterfeit grace that tells you no matter how much you sin, it's not going to affect your relationship with God. Yeah, that's that's terribly dangerous. And there's some elements of that that can be in hypergrace, but the overall emphasis of hypergrace doesn't say that. In, in other words, when Joseph Prince drew up a list of everything that he called counterfeit grace, he said, I reject that. Well, I reject that as well. And then he said, here's what I affirm. Well, I, I affirm those things, too. So where, where would you see a contradiction, sir? Oh, I just thought it paralleled. I thought it just seemed like uh, before the the phrase hypergrace was coined that that's what you were talking about in that book. Ah, oh, no, My thank you for... My second concern is yeah, at yeah, what so, point so, does so the just, leaven leaven the whole lump? Right. So just to explain, David, there is overlap between what I was addressing and It's Time to Rock the Boat and what I am uh, dealing with in hypergrace, but they're not identical. So at what point is a little leaven leaven the whole lump? When it does exactly that. In other words, when the fruit that it produces is the fruit of a cult or the fruit of deception or the fruit of disqualifying someone from being in the kingdom of God. So if the persistent fruit of hyper grace was backsliding, destruction, apostasy, then I would say it is counterfeit grace and it has leavened the whole lump. When I hear of many who have had their lives transformed, who love the Lord more than ever, who are spending more time with him in prayer, who have been set free from various addictions, and I see a lot of good fruit, then I see people are hearing the good part of the message. I remember a guy sending me a note on Twitter and saying, I'm thinking of buying your book, Hyper Grace, but listening to Joseph Prince, I got free, set free from years of alcohol addiction. Is your book going to put me back? The old Western of my book will reinforce the good parts of what he was saying. David, very important questions, and thank you so much for, for calling and for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, the earlier that you call in, the better chance I have of getting to your calls. So now's a great time to call in. It's rare on a Friday we have any open lines, but we do right now. So earlier you call in, better chance we have of getting to you. Uh, let's go to Eugene in Oklahoma. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you for uh, having me, Dr. Brown. I appreciate your ministry, sir. Sure thing. Yes, sir. So my question is uh, in regards to the um, the motivation behind the cross. And I was watching a film um, called The American Gospel, and um, I'm not Reformed, and you know I'm not too sure of what you think about Todd White, but they basically uh, tried to condemn him and others who hold to this view of saying that the motivation behind Jesus dying on the cross is the fact that he loved his creation. And um, they, I guess the way they teach it is by saying that we in and of ourselves are valuable, therefore God died for us, while the Reformed community, it's a little bit different. They believe that the motivation for 
God dying for his people is not found in people, but it's only found in him. In other words, he wanted to show how good he was by having mercy upon his children and forgiving his life for his children. And um, I'm a little bit confused. I don't really know what perspective is correct. I see truth in both of them almost. And also, do you think that if I hold, if anyone held to a view that Todd White has regarding the cross, do you believe that's worthy of condemning them to hell? Because I think that that community is somewhat quick to do that to a lot of people they have theological difference with, sir. Uh, yeah, number number one, if you believe that Jesus died for us because he saw us as valuable and precious and important, and that was part of it, is that something to be condemned to hell? No, of course not. Absolutely, categorically not. So look, when you are looking at the larger charismatic world, often there's an error among charismatics that they can be too open, too broad, too accepting of too many things, and thereby fall into deception. When you look at the non-charismatic world, especially in its reformed aspects, what you often have is they can be too closed, too narrow, and therefore rejecting good things that the Spirit of God is doing. So there are extremes on both sides. But no, there's nothing damnable about believing that. So yes, we understand that in and of ourselves, there is nothing worthy, deserving of the love of God. And I imagine Todd White would say that. I've only spent a few hours with him, so I, I can't say beyond that. But we understand that we all deserve damnation that we're all under the sentence of God's wrath, and if he condemned us, it would be right and fair and good, and he doesn't have to apologize for judging us because that's what we deserve. Yes, we all understand that. It is complete grace, unmerited favor, and expression of God's goodness, not our goodness, that Jesus died for us. But you better believe he sees us as valuable. You better believe he sees us. Look, we're created in his image, and his designs for us are very deep and very beautiful. And the picture that you have in Luke, in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, yes, this is talking about a believer that falls away, but how does the father feel? He yearns for that child to be back. So God created us perfect and upright. Then we went out and sinned and have done evil, and we are rebels in his sight, and yet he sees the great value of the human race. He, he puts a high price on it, even fallen, unsaved human beings, that if there's bloodshed, that the only thing that pays for that bloodshed is the blood of the one who shed it because the, the blood is precious because that's the blood of human life. The way God speaks with esteem and care for all of his creation, that you can't be abusive to, to human beings and things like that, is because of the intrinsic value of a human being created in God's image. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed because in the image of God man was made. So even fallen human beings are created in his image. And John 1, that is God's light and life that is the life uh, of every human being. So, of course, we're valuable in his sight. If you said that God sent his son to die for us because we were so good and we just got confused a little and he wanted to help us back on our path, now that's, that is utterly and completely wrong and false. But I, I affirm that that Jesus sees something valuable in us, even as lost sinful rebels. He sees us created in the image of God. He knows God's destiny and purpose for us. And therefore, yes, sir. He, he loves us. Absolutely. No, yes, no, no question. Thank you, Thank you for that response. And if you don't mind, 
why is it that the the typical I'm not trying to pick on them or anything like that, but why do they come off as very arrogant? I mean, in my experiences, sir, that's what I've experienced uh, from from the most. Yeah, of them. I, I mean, I, not, listen, yeah, and, and I'm I'm just jumping in, Eugene, because I I got a break coming up, and I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but but the fact of the matter is that we all have our bad tendencies, each group. And yeah, when I, in my reform years, that played in with an arrogance in my life, 77 to 82, I thought, I am an, I have the orthodox dog. I know. I, I've been enlightened. Uh, so it is very peculiar, but I've seen that. But look, if you're going to scrutinize each group, each has kind of a unique strength and unique weakness. So let's, let's each examine ourselves and start there. Hey, God bless, Eugene. Thanks for the call. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Sims in McAllen, Texas. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for taking my call. God bless you. God bless you. Um, I want to follow up on a response you gave to about the Ten Commandments a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be I'm going through the book of Exodus right now, and, and I guess I'm wanting to know uh, 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 an additional perspective because when I research it, I see that the Ten Commandments is often used. It's used in a lot of the catechism, along with the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, as a, a method of teaching. Yeah. Uh, many of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, like in Romans 13 and uh, uh, Ephesians 6. So I guess my question is, Is it would it be right to say that, yes, the Ten Commandments are part of the Sinai Covenant, and we as believers are not under the Sinai Covenant, but at the same time, they do represent universal truths from the heart of God that we ought to govern our lives by? Yeah, Sims, I, I, I love the way you asked the question. And it is fascinating when we think of it, because the Ten Commandments explicitly call for a seventh-day Sabbath, right? But when it's been used in church catechisms, it's been used in the context of a Sunday Sabbath, an eighth-day Sabbath, right? So that's the thing that's so fascinating, that the church changed the meaning of the Sabbath, but kept the commandment. So that opens up a massive question, doesn't it, about, well, should if you're going to hold the Ten Commandments and, and have them in a catechetical form, then shouldn't you be celebrating the Seventh-day Sabbath? I think you could make an excellent case for that, actually. So that, in, in other words, if, if you're going to say Sabbath is mandatory, then it would be Seventh-day versus Sunday. It would be Saturday versus Sunday. So I I instead would argue that it, we're looking at universal truths, as you said, and that the Sabbath command now in a New Testament context can be interpreted in terms of the rest that we find in the Lord or the importance of setting aside a day to honor him. But uh, the question is then why are we quoting it in the form, uh, if you quote it in the full form from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, that it's speaking explicitly of a seventh day. 
So uh, that's why I have no problem with Christians who say that we believe Sabbath is important, but it never changed from the seventh day. I, I agree, it hasn't. But I also understand that as the church grew and now included Gentile believers as well as Jews, and many living in a context where there was not a seven-day work week and things like that, you may have had a 10-day work week or whatever, but Saturday was not a potential day of rest, that, that there was an understanding that this is not given now in a binding way the way it was to Israel. So there are principles we learn from it, but it's not given in a binding way in the New Testament. But, uh, Sims, I don't think most Christians have really thought through the questions that you're raising, but they're, they're important to think through. Uh, I'm sure you agree with that. Yes, I do, and I'm just because I'm preparing because I'm only in Exodus chapter six now, so I've got a little ways to go. But I've been preparing us. Okay, how am I going to approach, you know, dealing and speaking with the people about the Ten Commandments? And yeah, uh, you uh, you give me some helpful clarification because I hadn't yet even thought about okay, well, how do I address the command of the Sabbath? Yeah, um, and, and what because, you'll see, what you'll see, sir, when you get to Exodus sixteen, is the first mention of the Sabbath in Exodus. And the Israelites, what's this? Oh, well, this is Sabbath and so on. So obviously they lost, if, if they knew about it before, they certainly didn't know about it. It, it became lost in, in slavery in Egypt, and the Egyptians weren't giving them the seventh day off. In fact, the Sabbath commandment was like, what? Are you serious? So, one day off? You don't work? Incre- everybody stops? That's incredible. That was amazing news. And then, of course, in the Ten Commandments in the 20th chapter, but then you'll see it again reiterated several other times in Exodus and part of it in a distinct way as, as a sign, a covenantal sign between God and Israel. Thank you for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Robert in New York. Welcome to the Line of Fire. How's it going, Dr. Brown? It's nice to speak to you again. Thank you. Um, I have a really quick question. I was just recently listening to a, a podcast of one of the um, ex-Westboro ba- Baptist Church. I'm sure you've heard of them before. Oh, yeah. And... Um, she had been talking about how she left the church, mm-hmm. but in general left the faith altogether, yeah. um, not just that particular church. And uh, one of the things she brought up uh, was Romans 9. The reason why she stopped believing was the, uh, you know, God gives uh, mercy to some, and that some, she was reading the passage as some people are created for wrath, like God intentionally did that and then punishes them. Um, right. in that aspect of, like, they're, they have no control over it. I just wanted to know what you thought about the Romans 9 and how it reads. Yeah, first, the broader issue, when people have a wrong theology, it can often cause them to leave the faith entirely. In other words, rather than think, okay, the faith is true, God is true, the Word is true, Jesus is Lord, but I had some wrong understandings, they associate mm-hmm. their wrong understandings with the whole system. Or someone gets abused by a spiritual leader, And because of that, they leave the church because that leader represented God to them. So uh, these things happen, and they're casualties, and that's that's very, very sad when it happens. Romans 9, Paul is certainly saying God has the right to do that. In other words, if he wants to, as God, he certainly can do that. And and human beings don't have the right to argue with him. There's a what if, what if God determined to do that. But you have to keep reading. You read through Romans 9, 10, 11 to get to the point where it says God has consigned all men over to unbelief, to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on them all. That's the fundamental message of the cross, 
that we've all chosen sin, we're all guilty, and yet God in his love has reached out to have mercy on all. And Romans 9 is talking more about calling to service than calling to salvation. And when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, when you actually go through and start reading in Exodus 3 and read through the entire account right up through Exodus 14, you'll see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And then God, in the Hebrew, there's three different verbs that are used that are now progressively intense that God gives Pharaoh, uh, confirms him in his sin, and then even further, and then God actively hardens. So you don't see in Scripture where where someone is earnestly seeking God or wanting to please God, and God says, you know what? I'm going to damn you just to do it because I'm God. And you, you know, I'm just going to create out of the womb for destruction because I'm God. I know that so John is that, Calvin... Is that similar? Is that John Calvin to, said that, you know, that already knowing that it's in their heart and that's why he's hardening it because it's already there. Yeah. In, in other words, there's there's no instance in Scripture where and I know Calvin, I started to say, says that some are doomed from the womb to destruction. And my Calvinist yeah, friends yeah. affirm that I, I do not see that as a scriptural at, at all. Uh, Nor do for, I. For, for many, many reasons, with all respect to, to Calvin and, and to my Calvinist friends. But, yeah, look. Here's the deal. You read in Genesis, the 20th chapter, with King Abimelech, that he takes in Sarah, thinking that she's Abraham's sister, and he's planning to sleep with her. Uh, now, nothing gets consummated, ultimately, and, and basically everybody gets just kind of frozen in terms of the ability to reproduce in his, in his, in his household there, but, or in, in his palace. But God says, I, I saw your heart. In other words, you didn't know that she was she was another man's wife. And because of that, I kept you from sinning against me. So, uh, yes, okay. certainly you see consistently the, the judgment and the justice of God, that he's not arbitrary in any way. Hey, Robert, thank you much for the call, and may God bring that woman to true salvation. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Rebecca in Brooklyn. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, I'm Dr. Brown. Hey. Um, happy to be here. Uh, my question is just about relating to the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, I, like, with my understanding, I kind of, it may be just my simple-mindedness, but I found it to be a bit, like, of a conflict. Like, when God was hiding his face from Moses in Exodus 33, mm-hmm. because he said, if you see my face, you will die. Yeah. And I also, like, compare those to the other, like, pre-incarnate appearances of God in the Old Testament. And people not dying, you know, they were yeah. like, you know, I've seen God, but I have not died, like Gideon and yeah. and Jacob, yeah. and et cetera. And um, also compare that to the New Testament, where Jesus says, God is spirit. And also, like, in Luke 24, he says, like, you know, you see me, I'm not, you can touch me, I'm, I'm, I'm not spirit, but I'm flesh. Yeah. So, like, it kind of confused me, because, like, you know, with Moses, he's like he's seeing like a back, and you know, with his hands being described. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know if it's yeah, just yeah. like anthropomorphic language, or like you know, it, it kind of confused me because yeah, you know, to say that God has a face, like the Father, rather. Yeah, yeah. Kind of confused me. Okay. Yeah, you. sure. So, Rebecca, first thing, there's nothing simple-minded about your questions. This, these are great questions, and, and even knowing the concepts of anthropomorphic issues and things like that. <laughs> 
you know, uh, God being described in human terms? No, it's, it's a great question. So let me give you the big picture first. God is spirit, but spirit does not mean just like wind. It was God is spirit, so he exists in another plane, but it's a very real plane. In other words, God is a visible being with characteristics, but he exists in another plane. Jesus coming into this world takes on a flesh body and then rises from the dead in a glorified body. So that is unique to him, all right? But God is a tangible, visible being with features of God. That's why not? In other words, spirit doesn't mean you're just like, why can't there be images associated with God? If we're made in his image, is it only spiritual image? Just go beyond that. Either way, we know that God's being described in human terms, but the human terms reflect who God is in terms of his being. All right, what about cancer and cancer? We'll take that up and come back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the broadcast. Another reminder, join me in Orlando, Florida this weekend. All the details on my itinerary, AskDrBrown.org. And less than 10 seats left on our Israel trip. So if you're planning on coming with us in May, now is the time to register. Right? You've got questions. We've got answers. So Rebecca in Brooklyn, how is it that God is seen and unseen? Exodus 24, they saw the God of Israel. Exodus 33, no one will see my face and live. How does that work? Well, John 1.18, it says this, no one has seen God at any time. But the one and only God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Hmm? First Timothy 6, Paul writes that God dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or can see him. And yet Jesus says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that's how it works. It is the role of the Son to make the Father known. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, he is the the very stamp of his character, the shining forth of his being. So the Father dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see him and live. The Son is the one who makes him known. And the Spirit works invisibly to draw all attention to the Son, who then draws attention to the Father and one God is all in all. So I hope that is helpful for you in your understanding. 866-34-TRUTH. I'm going back to the phones in one moment. There's a Facebook question asking, you know, I hear all this about angel boards and tarot cards and Christians. How do these things go together? Okay. First, the only reason we're hearing a lot about it is because practices of like one group in one place got a ton of attention. All right. I've never run into this myself in all of my travels, but from what I understand is not tarot cards. Rather, it was scripture cards or cards that would get the attention of people that are into all this new age stuff, but with scripture truths and with ways to say, or, or maybe about moods and things like that and say, hey, you want to sit down? We want to pray for you. Know, or do, would you like a reading? 
They've said it like that to get the person to sit down and just try to interact with them and then give them a reading. Basically, you need Jesus. You're a lost sinner. You need to be saved. Now, whether it's a good technique or bad, whether it's a mixture, all I know about is the little I just told you, that much. It may be crazy, far out, ridiculous, stay away from it. It may be, yeah, good idea, but you're playing with fire. Or it might be, oh, what a creative way to preach the gospel. I don't know more about it, but this is not some phenomenon that I've heard about. It's a you know, wide, wide spread. All right, uh, let us go to Tony in Louisiana. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Tony. Tony's not there. Tony wanted to ask me about my personal devotional practices. Uh, obviously, the foundations of everything are prayer and the Word. In my earlier days in the Lord, when I was saved, you know, a year or two, I would spend at least six or seven hours alone with God every single day. I would read the Word two hours. I would memorize Scripture for one hour, and I would memorize 20 verses a day. I would pray requests and other things and pray for my own heart and life. That would be over two hours. I'd pray in tongues at least an hour a day. So I'd pray at least three hours, be in the Word at least three hours. I had a very free high school schedule, was able to do that. It's been very rare in my life over the years since then that I've had that kind of time. There are times when I just go away and I, I've spent up to a week just alone and spend the vast majority of every day praying and in the Word. Uh, you know, for special times of just meeting with God and getting renewed. And there are times that I'll pull away and, and just spend those hours and hours seeking him. But uh, otherwise, uh, I will be studying lots of different things in Scripture, then periodically do a plan to just read through the whole Bible again as kind of a refresher. Uh, some, the fastest is the Bible in 90 days, but that's just a, you're, getting it, you're getting it in front of you again. But then I'm always studying, digging. I may be working heavily in a particular book or particular aspects of things, but you always want to be reading the Word spiritually for growth, for, for, for strength, for, for edification, and not just studying subjects. All right. As far as my prayer life, um, I pray at different times of different days. Ideally, it is not best to follow my example. Ideally, it is best to have set times every day when this is my time I pray, get the word foundationally, and to start the day is the best way to do it. I've been a late-night person almost all my life, and as the years have gone on, it's gotten more extreme, not less extreme. So many, many, many times I'm just getting going at midnight, okay? Just getting going at midnight, and and then I am, I am you know, two, three four, maybe four in the morning, you know, five, okay, I got to turn in. And so I spent a lot of time in prayer late and a lot of time studying late. But when I'm home and not traveling, because my schedule is so wild in that regard, I'll really try to start the day in a quality way, meet with the Lord, pour out my heart. I, I do pray in tongues a lot. Uh, often it turns to groaning of intercession and great burden. And out of that, pray with my understanding. Uh, and then out of that, praying for specific needs, specific situations, and people. And then all through the course of the day, there's prayer, and there's thinking about the Word, or listening to the Bible, or being in the Word, kind of like an ongoing thing all through the day. So hopefully that's helpful for you as well. 866-34-TRUTH. 
Uh, let us go to Michael in California. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Michael. All right, I guess you're not. Now, I would answer your question about the Tetragrammaton, but I don't know exactly what it would have been because you couldn't hold. So we'll go over to Luke in Israel. Where in Israel are you, sir? Hello, Luke. Oh, man, what's happened to our callers? All right, I was eager to talk to you, Luke, about Daniel 727, but... Guess not. All right, we go to Josh in L.A. Welcome to the line of fire. Ah, all right. Tell you what, it looks like it looks like people are there, but I'm not hearing them. Apparently, because it's well, I mean, I got a full board of callers here. Let's tell you what, I'm gonna tr- I'm just gonna try one more, just to see. Uh, Brett in Charlotte. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, okay. how's it going? Good, good, Brett. Nice to talk to you. We finally get a voice on the other side. All right. Uh, yes. What's up? What's up, sir? I was just wondering, um, I had a question about, you know, how you know, certain people in the world will, will be in terrible situations. And that's all they'll know their whole life. And they'll die homeless yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So, like, how does that tie into God having a plan for everyone? Yeah. So uh, let's let's look at it a few different ways. There's one way, which would be the Calvinistic understanding uh, which which would say, uh, yeah, God, God is uh, God has a plan for everyone, but for some it's it's heaven, and for some it's hell. You know, for uh, you know, for for some it it is it is uh, damnation, and maybe you know just a terrible life, or maybe a rich life and damnation, and for others salvation and grace. So. That's it. That's one way of looking at it. God does have a plan for everyone. Some of the plans we like, some we don't like. That's one way of looking at it. Uh, another way of, of looking at it is that God has an ideal plan for everyone, but many times because of our sin or our disobedience, we don't experience that ideal. And certainly Scripture is full of examples like that of, of God saying, I, I wanted to do this, but you did this. I intended to do this, but you did this. My plan was to bless but you did this, and therefore you came under judgment. But I would look at it in the bigger way and say that ultimately God has made provision through the cross for every human being to know him and be with him forever and ever and ever, which is a trillion times more important than being homeless or destitute in this world. In fact, for the most part, you find more openness to the gospel among the poor than among the rich. And the parable of the rich man and Lazarus illustrates, again, you may have much in this world, but nothing in the world to come. And James, Jacob, the second chapter, asks, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, to be heirs of the kingdom? And the fifth chapter says it's often the rich who are, who are wicked and under divine judgment. So I would say that many of those who are first will be last. Many who had the least in this world will have the most in the world to come. Uh, there are brothers and sisters uh, that I work with in India, people that have very, very little in this world but are very, very rich spiritually. So I do believe that God's desire is for all people to know him and be with him forever and that we see the plan of God unfolding through the gospel. So we need to extend that to everyone, that if Jesus is lifted up, he draws all people to himself So we see that foundationally. 
and then it's up to us to give that invitation to all. So the, the, the adage of starting with telling someone uh, Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life as the first word of the gospel, I understand many don't see that it's scriptural or wouldn't do it in that way. But if I'm seeing someone talking to them, I have no question whatsoever that God desires that person's salvation and God desires that that person will be with him forever and that God has a plan where that person's life will bear fruit for the gospel, be it through hard times in this world or good times in this world. I feel sure about that. And I could tell someone, everyone I look in the eye, that God has a plan for their lives and that God's desire is that they are with him forever and that their lives bear fruit for his glory in this world and forever. I feel very confident of that. So hope that answers your question. Yeah. Um, so if, if I can follow up on it. So you're saying that even if they do have a plan, people can still sin and, and stray off that path themselves. Yes. Yes, sir. We see that over and over in and Scripture. Then, mm-hmm. So they'll stray off that path. And that that's not directly correlated to their wealth or anything. That's just how... Yeah. That, that's just how they are. Like, they're, they're judged just by how much their worth is. So even if they're suffering down here, it's not about their current presence. It's about their long-term afterlife presence. Right, right. It's all, the ultimate goal is that we become conformed to the image of Jesus, that we spend eternity with God glorifying him and enjoying him. That's the ultimate destiny. But even in this world, you can have very little outwardly and be super abundantly blessed. And you can have a lot outwardly and, and be spiritually impoverished. So there's not always a direct correlation. Hey, thank you for the question. All right, looks like we've reconnected with some of our other callers. We'll get back to them momentarily. We'll start in Israel, in Los Angeles, South Carolina, as time as we have. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. All right, we go over to Israel. Hey, Luke, uh, where in Israel are you? I'm in the Judean hill country. Um, okay. Up, uh, uh, I don't know the exact area. I'm not, not too familiar with it, but it's like a Bible extension program for my university back in California. Oh, sweet. Excellent. So glad you're able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, thanks man, for, uh, for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. Um. So I have a question about Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Mm-hmm. Um, when it talks about in the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the, to the people of the saints of the Most High. Mm-hmm. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And um, all dominions shall serve and obey Him, referring yes. to the Most High. Or do you know if the... The underlying Aramaic should be should be serve him referring to the Most High or serve and obey them referring to the saints. Uh, yes, there there is a dispute among translators, and often in Jewish interpretation. So so the Ar- the Aramaic there v'chol shel lay 
Yiflichun. So the, the word lay there uh, does that. It means to him, certainly to him or to it. So it is often taken in Jewish interpretation to be referring to the uh, the people. But uh, to me, it's very very evident based on what we read earlier uh, in the text <clears throat> about the the Son of Man and his exaltation uh, and the you know the the exaltation of the Messiah that it's not talking about the, the people, but rather the Messiah himself. You could say the Most High, but because it's given to him, who's it given to? It's given to the Son of Man, the exalted messianic figure. So it doesn't say conspicuously to them, right? Uh, but rather to him. So uh, that's how I would, I would render it. And if I'm just looking quickly at different translations, <clears throat> the, um, the New Jewish Publication Society which um <clears throat> which would take it in the in the sense that it's referring to the people, the kingship and dominion and grandeur belonging to all the kings in heaven will be given to the people of the Holy Ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, all dom- dominion shall serve and obey them. Uh, I wouldn't read it like that. I would read it as in the NET. Uh, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. All authorities will serve him and obey him. So either speaking about the Most High or speaking about the Messiah to whom the kingdom is given, uh, certainly not to the people. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, appreciate uh, the. Yeah, I, go ahead. I was, I was actually going to ask you one, one, one more question, if that's that's okay with you, man. Sure, sure. Uh, I was going to ask about. Um, so I know like Daniel two and Daniel seven are ki- kind of similar, talking about the, the four kingdoms, and then it talks about like God setting up His kingdom yes. in Daniel two through this through the stone, like Daniel 7, through the Son of Man. Um, do you take that, like, setting up the kingdom in the days of those kings to be referring back to Christ's first coming? Um, before, yes, sir. Yes, be- because because the, the Roman Empire is standing, and, and here this rock comes and strikes at the feet, and the whole thing crumbles. In fact, that's a good verse, the end of Daniel 2, to point to the Messiah had to come during that time, during the time of the Roman Empire, during during the time of its prominence, and then that small stone, just that rock, now causes everything else to crumble. So yes, that's definitely how I interpret that. That's the foundation of the kingdom, and then Daniel Selwyn, the culmination of the kingdom with the Lord's return in in the in the clouds and coming in power. Great question, sir. Thank you so much. Eight six six three four truth. We connect with Michael in California. Ready for your question, sir. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, my question is specifically about the Tetragrammaton. Yep. And I've heard at least one Hebrew professor and multiple YouTubers, which uh, YouTubers can kind of be a mixed bag sometimes, but they've said that the ancient Hebraic symbols actually meant behold the hand, behold the nail. No, forget it. Which sounds forget too it. good to be true, but then again, all probably too good to be true, really. You will not find a bona fide Hebrew scholar arguing for that. Okay. It is. It is. It, what you need to do is uh, go go to my YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown, or my website, AskDrBrown.org, and just type in the word paleo, and we completely destroy this myth that the pictographs. First, that you can definitively say that that's what the pictographs meant. You know that that this actually means behold. You know, or something like that. That the the hay actually huh. means that for sure. It, that's highly disputed in terms of the, the original okay. meaning. But the pictographs no longer had a pictographic meaning. 
once they became part of an alphabetic script. So, so for example, the the uh, Aleph, the ox and ox head, the only meaning it had now was not that picture, but rather the sound of the the of the Aleph, which is more of a of a uh-huh. non uh, spoken sound. Or the for buy it house, the only meaning it had was b. So you took the first letter. Uh, so that now with just like 22 letters, you could get all the sounds that you needed. Pictographs, you need thousands and thousands and thousands. The idea that you could have language being conveyed with 22 pictures is completely bogus. And that's why the letters changed so quickly, because they no longer had pictographic meaning. So they get simplified in their forms. But just type in the word paleo, and you will, you will have in detail, with lots of examples, specifics, pictures, and things like that, complete demolition of the do you remember you said a hebrew scholar you heard it from do you remember who that was yeah it was actually someone who taught at a school in my neighborhood it was one of my youth who was going to school like taking a hebrew class in college and i had him ask the hebrew professor and they said yeah that's awesome that's true yeah at at most first it may not have been a real scholar just someone teaching hebrew at a a college but at most the person would have been saying, yeah, the original pictographs would have meant that, but it has, it has no meaning once it becomes an alphabetic script. That's all. Just it. like, for okay. example, our English letter A comes from ultimately the same Hebrew Phoenician script for the ox head, okay? It comes from, uh, from Phoenician into Greek into Latin into English. Or B, our letter B, that's same from buy it, house. So our letters, just like our letters, you can trace them back to those old forms if I show you, but they don't have that meaning, okay? That it's, it's all okay. lost. But anyway, if you watch paleo is, is, uh, just search for that and, and we, we explain the, the myth of the, the paleo Hebrew script. There's an ancient script called paleo, but that's all it is, just an ancient script. Uh, Josh in Los Angeles, glad to reconnect with you. Your question, sir. Hey, how's it going? Um, thanks for taking my call. Appreciate sure thing. you. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm from Los Angeles, and, um, you know, my question is regarding uh, the late Kobe Bryant. You know, it's pretty sad over here in Los Angeles, the sports yeah, and of things course. of his passing and stuff. But, uh, you know, my question is very controversial among my friends or Christian friends and whatnot. And it's basically, it might be a two-part, but just basically, like, what are your thoughts on, like, whether or not Kobe Bryant is in heaven or hell? And uh, before you answer or respond, like, it's just because the reason I ask is because a lot of my friends who are Christians, and some of them are strong ones, are so quick to put him in heaven because they loved him so much and said he's a right. devout Catholic and a good family man. But in the 20 years living here and, you know, hardcore Laker fan watching him, even before I was saved and uh, ever, even after I was saved, like, I never heard him mention Jesus once or anything like that. And so basically, I'm not saying he's in heaven or hell, but I'm just, right. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Because, you right. know, we're so quick to use our emotions and put people in heaven or hell based exactly. on what we felt. You know, I don't know. I just wanted to call and ask your uh, uh, opinion about that. Bottom, bottom line, we don't know. We have no idea whatsoever. And we have no right to speculate because we do not know. So, for example, was there sexual immorality in his past, adultery in his past? Yeah, a- allegedly a good amount. Was that his lifestyle to this day? Or, or to the day of his death, or did he did he turn away from that? Was he a devoted uh, husband and, and father? Uh, was he a Catholic just out of religious tradition, 
or despite certain errors within Catholicism, did he really know the Lord and have a private relationship with the Lord? That's why he was, you know, the week he died, he and his daughter had communion, or was it the day of their death? So only God knows. That's the bottom line. If I see someone die, and to their dying breath, they are rejecting God, they are cursing God, they are saying they don't believe, or to their dying breath, they are professing faith in, in Islam or something like that, then I say they're lost. But even someone who, until an hour before they died, I knew them to be lost, I don't know what happened in the last hour. And even though it's rare, there are people that cry out for mercy in the end. You know, and and, uh, true story about the Titanic, that there was a guy uh, on the the ship that was preaching the gospel. And then even as, as he was drowning and those were drowning, he kept preaching until he drowned. How many people got saved at the last minute? We simply don't know. I, I've heard of planes that went down, and you find out that there was a, a fiery evangelist on the plane, and, and, and they, they knew they were going to crash. It's like, I wouldn't surprise me if that person was up there preaching. So it's what, it, what we must do, Josh, is examine our own lives to make sure we're in right relationship with God, and then take every opportunity we have to share the gospel with others, because None of us knows how long that we have. None of us at all. And therefore, let us do our best to share the good news with others and realize the sobriety, the the intensity of your nine people on their way to basketball game and they're gone. Moms, dads, kids, gone. No one expected it happens every day of every week. May God have mercy. May he use us to reach many. Thank you for the call. All right, friends, back with you live from Orlando on Monday.